You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. So let's get after it. Here we go. Galatians chapter one. Now, what I want to share about tonight um, specifically um, is about sin. In fact, I said a little bit about it on Sunday, but I didn't really get a chance to go into it. One of the things about sin um, in the church for the last 2000 years, um, I can say this confidently for the last 2000 years, the church has been struggling with the issue of sin. Now, when it comes to the topic of sin, you know, I think the general um, presupposition, so so to speak, I can't get it out. The presupposition, so to speak, is that the church is anti-sin. So whatever is sin, the church is against it. Um, And I want to be really careful about this too. Matthew Edwards, I am against sin. All right. Keep in mind, I'm against sin for the same reason I believe that God is against sin, because sin destroys you. Sin um, tears marriages apart. Sin uh, separates parents from families. Sin um, sin has never done anything good for anybody. Sin is just absolutely destructive at its very core. I mean, Paul said himself, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. At the end of the day, sin kills, sin destroys. So Matthew Edwards, pastor of Center Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, I am against sin, vehemently, strongly, aggressively against sin. I am in no way, shape or form for sin. All right. And I know I'm probably like going overboard on that. But, I, you know, I want to say that and I want to make that very clear from the beginning, because what we're going to sh- what I want to show you is this. At the end of the day, yes, I am against sin, but there is something that God is against more than he is actually against sin. Now, saying that and saying that very, very carefully and intentionally, I'm going to show you why I'm saying that in just a moment. But saying that, I want you to understand what we're about to read. We're about to compare two different churches. All right. Now, understand when it comes to Bible study, we have to set the precedence. When it comes to Bible study, you have to realize we don't just open up the Bible and say, "Okay, Lord, show me what you want me to read tonight. There's some people who do that. And there's times where I've done it and God has been able to speak to me. But I think when it comes to Bible study, we're not just going to open the Bible at some random point. Say, "Okay, Lord, give me whatever you have. Bible study is intentional. Bible study is saying, "Okay, Lord, I want to see it. And when you come to Bible study, understand Bible study is saying, let me see the Bible through the lens or through the window that God wants me to see it through. The reason why I say that is this. The entire Bible was not written to us. Now, I'll say that carefully, but again, the entire Bible was not written to us. Now, there is a section of the Bible that was written to us. And let me say what Paul said. All scripture, the entire Bible, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So, yes, the whole Bible is useful. All the whole Bible is breathed scripture by God. So the whole Bible is beneficial and helpful. But at the end of the day, you have to understand what was written to you and what was not written to you. If you don't know what's written to you and what's not written to you, you'll get confused and think that something that was written to someone else was written to you. In fact, I've used this example before. Let's say uh, my brother who's on here. Let's say me and Stephen had an inside joke when we were kids. We have tons of inside jokes. But anyways, let's say me and Stephen have an inside joke. Now, in that inside joke, or this is a perfect example. I'll use this. My brother, um, we did a podcast where we'll post that at some point. Uh, when we were kids playing basketball growing up, 
Um, there was a time I beat my cousin and me and my cousin, we had this ongoing bet that one day if I ever beat him, he's older than me. If I ever beat him, he would give me his Reggie Miller, Indiana Pacers basketball shorts. Now that was between us, right? <laughs> now, nobody really knew what that was. Uh, but now that we're adults, fast forward 20 years down the road, you know, if I were to write a note or a letter to my brother and in that letter or in that email, if I were to write an email to him and I would say, Stephen, you know, the Lord has shown me this. The Lord has shown me that. The Lord has shown me X, Y, and Z. When you take communion, when you pray in the spirit and all these scriptural truths that, I'm, that the Lord has been sharing with me, that's all beneficial. But at the end of that email, I put, oh, by the way, I'm keeping the Reggie Miller shorts. Don't ask for them back. Now, let's say Stephen, when he reads that, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. But let's say, for example, you get that same email. You intercept that email. You see it. You print it out. You take it home. And when you read it, all the truths that are in that letter are beneficial. They're helpful. And they help you in your walk with Christ. However, when you get to the bottom, you see this side note that says, oh, I'm keeping the Reggie Miller shorts. It, you would be crazy to see that and think, hey, this is for me. This is beneficial to me. I need to go get Reggie Miller shorts and I need to keep them. Now, again, not understanding the context and not realizing that it wasn't written to you. You'll start applying things to your life that have nothing to do with you whatsoever, that are not beneficial to you, that are not helpful to you, and really won't do anything for you at all. So again, the Bible is no different. You have to understand the context. You have to understand what was written, who it was written to, and the context in that it was written. Understanding that, realize this, that in the whole Bible, again, one more time, all scripture is God breathed and all scripture. The apostle Paul said this, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we don't throw out any of the Bible, but knowing that we have to apply what was written to us and understand what was not written to us. Now, knowing that all scripture is still beneficial, but we have to be able to interpret it in the light of which it was given. Now, again, this is Bible study, so we're not going to go too, too, too soft. Let's Go ahead and keep it moving. You're, you should be in Galatians chapter one. But I say all that to say this. What we're going to look at is through the lens of the Apostle Paul. Now, keep in mind, the reason why I say that a lot in our church, and I'm saying that tonight on Bible study night, is because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. All right. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was not the apostle to the Gentiles. And if you're a non-Jew, guess what? You are a Gentile. All right. Peter was not the apostle to the Gentiles. John was not the apostle to the Gentiles. Jude was not, um, and James was not the apostle to the Gentiles. None of them were, all right? Paul was the apostle that God sent to the Gentiles, and two-thirds of the New Testament was written by Paul. So when you read the Bible, you have to read it through the lens of the apostle that God gave you. Imagine God puts a man in front of you and says, everything that I wrote, I want you to see it through his lens, through his understanding. And the reason why is because I'm giving him exactly what I want you to get. He's going to translate everything for you, for you to understand it better. Then that means, hey, look, everything he says, I'm going to listen to every word he says. Now, I'm not going to throw out the rest of the Bible. That's stupid. However, I'm going to interpret the rest of the Bible through the lens of this person that God said he is your apostle. So again, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So let's take a look at this. In Galatians chapter one, what we're going to do is we're going to compare two churches, like we said earlier, okay? Two churches. And the two churches we're going to compare are the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth. Now, knowing that, let me say this again. Let me say this. 
we're going to be talking about sin. For the last 2,000 years, the church has been trying to figure out how to deal with sin. How do we deal with sin? And let me say this. It's a sad thing that we're still trying to figure this out 2,000 years later when Jesus dealt with sin at the cross. Now, knowing and feeling that way, like in my, you know, internally, and I say that in all truthfulness, not to be theatrical, I mean that. It's sad that we're still dealing with sin the way we are. I don't consider myself to be separated from the problem. I consider myself to also be part of the problem. I am in the middle of it going, God, why am I still struggling with the things I'm struggling with? The church, I'm, I'm, I'm not somewhere above everyone else saying, how, how can you still deal with this? What I'm saying is, we need this message preached more and more and more so that myself and whoever else is watching this, whoever else is listening to this, that we can find a way to say, hey, sin does not have power over us anymore. Now, the simple answer to that statement is this. Paul says in Romans chapter, don't get it wrong, Romans chapter five, I believe, Paul says this, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. As long as you are under the law, sin will have dominion or kingly authority over you. All right. As long as sin reigns in your life, you are still under the law. But the moment you come underneath grace, sin has no more power over you. It's not saying that you don't sin. It's just saying that sin doesn't have power over you. Now, knowing that, knowing that, that's the simple answer. But we can't just take one verse and use that for the rest. No, this is Bible study. <laughs> so let's get to it. Now, we're going to compare, like I said, twice already, third time. We're going to compare two churches. And the two churches that we're going to compare are the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth. Now, before we look at the church in Corinth, let's look at Galatia, the church in Galatia. All right. In Galatians chapter one, take a look at this. Let's pick up at verse six. Galatians chapter one, verse six, the apostle Paul says, I marvel. Now, I always highlight that in my Bible. I marvel. This is the New King James Version. I should have printed out like a different version. Uh, but if you have your phone or you have something else with you, go look up a different translation real quick or just jot this down and go look it up different translation later. Because what Paul says is, I marvel. I marvel. Now, keep in mind, this is the Apostle Paul. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot. Uh, used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was being trained and groomed to be the high priest. I mean, when it comes to sin, he's probably heard the worst. But here he is. He's already been preaching. He's already been establishing churches. The grace of God has been made manifest to him. And here he is looking at this church. And he says, I marvel. Translation, my mind is blown. How in the world? I, I'm, I am utterly shocked. That's what the word marvel means right here, okay? Don't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But anyways, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, we share this a lot in our church, so I'll just go ahead and say this out loud, right? When it comes to the grace of Christ, grace is the gospel. I hate that we have to say the gospel of grace. I hate that we have to even put that in our emails, that we have to write that on our post, that we have to say that out loud. But people tend to think that grace is different from the gospel. Right here, Paul says himself, I'm shocked and utterly surprised that you would move from the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So grace is the gospel. So uh, We won't go there. Anyways, he says in verse seven, which is not another, Right which is not another, whatever you're hearing, is aside from grace, is not a different gospel. It's actually not the gospel at all. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. To take someone away from the grace of God is to trouble that person and to remove, I'm sorry, and to do what? Uh, uh, and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You know, I say this to people in our church all the time, and I, I don't think we can say it enough. You have to be careful who you listen to. 
You have to be careful. There are so many preachers who are charismatic, who are loud, who jump, they scream, they shout, they dance across the stage. I mean, they're, they're, they're socially relevant. They're holding up their phones in the service. You know, they're doing all these crazy cool things. They fit in with the, with the crowd. You know, they're, 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 they're preachers with sneakers. <laughs> I love that phrase. They're preachers with sneakers. You know, they got the holes in their pants. They wear their hat when they preach. I mean, you know, they, they, you just have to be careful because at the end of the day, the, the, the highlight of most of a lot of sermons, I'm not, we're not here to call them, we're not, but the highlight of a lot of messages that I hear focuses on you. The, that, that point that we put in the post on social media, it focuses on you. What are you not doing? How are you not right? How do you need to do it better? What can you, it's just all about you. But right here, the gospel is not really about you. It's about the grace of Christ and anything that makes you look away from the grace of God to anything else. Is to trouble that person and pervert the gospel. So then you see in verse seven, and we'll, we'll move on from here. After, I'm sorry, verse eight. He says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, which is the grace of God, the grace of Christ, let him be accursed. Now watch this. To preach anything other than grace, Paul pronounced a curse on that preacher. Crazy. A curse on that ministry. I mean, this is just mind blowing. The Apostle Paul is saying, anyone who preaches anything other than grace, let them be cursed. Then he says this in verse 9, as, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, second time, let him be cursed. Now, <laughs> I like the New King James on this, but let me say it this way. He just pronounced a double curse on anyone preaching anything other than the grace of Christ. You know, let me say this. I don't care what people think, what people feel. I don't care how many people come to me and say, Matthew, there's more, there's other, there's this. Let me say this. I'm not stupid. If Paul said you preach anything other than grace, you're cursed. I'm preaching grace. I'm staying in grace. And you know what? That's my prayer. Every time I open my Bible is, Lord, show me more of your grace so that I can share more of your grace. Because if what you want me to do is share the word of God, share revelation that unveils Christ, then help me do it. Because the last thing I ever want to do is stand up in front of anyone and preach anything other than grace. Because the one who preaches anything other than grace, that person is under a curse. Now think about the point of a curse. The point of a curse is not because God is mad at the person, but God wants to protect the people under that person's influence. So what does he do? He curses that ministry and causes that ministry to deteriorate from the inside out. Are you with me? He causes it to deteriorate, do, to deteriorate from the inside out. The purpose of the curse is not because God is mad at the person. It's because God doesn't want that favor or that influence to be used to point people to anyone other than his son. You understand? I mean, that in and of itself is profound enough. But needless to say, what was the problem with that this church was struggling with? Just from chapter one, they turned from the grace of Christ to something else. They turned from the grace of Christ to something else. They went from Jesus did it all to this is what you need to be doing. They went from Jesus and his obedience to why are you not obedient? You know, I joke around in our church all the time. The, the perfect example of this is that person that stands up and says, you know, it's about your obedience. If you're, obedient, if you're not obedient, then God can't bless you. If you're not doing this, then God can't bless you. If you're not doing these things, then God can't bless you. You're not, you're not, you're not. If you don't, you don't, you don't, then God won't, God won't. You, you get my point? It's going back to the law. That's the point. But again, the whole idea is to put your eyes on you. To preach anything other than grace is to put your eyes on you. Grace says, relax, Jesus did it all. 
the law comes in and says, you still need to get up and you still need to do something. In fact, last, I want to say, I think it was Sunday, we were talking about fear. Go back and get that message. It's on the podcast, escaping anxiety. All right. If you are not convinced that God is going to do it, then you're going to step into your own works, righteousness, and try to find a way to get it done. The answer is not do more. The answer is rest more in Jesus. But again, that message for another time. My point tonight in not saying all this is this. The problem with this church in Galatia was they had Paul come and preach the grace of Christ and they were excited. Jesus did it all. It's about what Jesus did. We are as righteous as Jesus is because it's his righteousness. And then all of a sudden, if you read the rest of the book, other people came in and they started preaching something different from the grace of Christ. And it turned the mindset of the people to say, Maybe we do need to get up. Maybe we do need to do something. Maybe God will bless us if we do something else. Now, I want you to understand, Paul is not mad at these people. He's not pronouncing a curse at these people because they were just blatantly, openly sinning. Paul was mad at them because they were trying to be good enough for what God had for them. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that in just a moment. I'm going to share a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I mean, think about it. Paul was not saying, I marvel at you. He was not saying that, you know, you're cursed because you're just blatantly sinning. You don't care. You're doing all these things that are bad. Paul said, you are under a curse. And I am utterly shocked and marveling at you because you're trying to be good enough for what God has for you. Now, knowing that, let me say this, and I'll just go ahead and beat myself to the punch, right? Let me just go ahead and say this. There is nothing worse than trying to be good enough for what God has for you. There's nothing worse. I can show you example. My mind's already racing. I can show you examples of the Old Testament. But for the sake of Bible study night, we're already 20 minutes into this. I won't do it. All right. I love you too much. I won't do it. But I want you to understand something. There is nothing worse than thinking that God is going to do something for you because you have done something first. There's nothing worse than it. Now, again, Paul uses words he never uses for any other church. He uses words like, I marvel. And he uses words like, curse. He's never said that to any other church. And he doesn't say it to any other church. He says it to this church only because they stepped away from the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, let's compare this with the church in Corinth. Are you ready? Now, the church in Corinth was actually a pretty rough church. Uh, I'm going to try to have this culturally relevant moment. I don't know if you've ever played Assassin's Creed. I probably shouldn't be saying that in a Bible study, but you know what? It's all good. I played Assassin's Creed. Huge Assassin's Creed nerd. I love the game. Uh, I was playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which actually takes place in Greece, which is really cool because Paul set up churches in Greece. This is a nerd moment. Anyways, <laughs> um, in the game... Uh, there's no, you, you just don't count, you don't encounter prostitutes or harlots until you get to the city of Corinth in the game, which is interesting because of all the churches that Paul visited in the Bible or, or all the churches he created in the Bible, Corinth is the only church that has an issue with temple prostitutes. So nice tidbit there, historically relevant, uh, to prove again that what we're reading here is factually true. Anyways, let's get to it. Sorry. Uh, first Corinthians chapter five. First Corinthians chapter five. Now let's just pick up at verse one and we're going to read down. I'm just going to explain it to you. I want to get to something else. All right. First Corinthians chapter five. Look at verse one. Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexually immorality, there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife exclamation point translation. He's saying, let me, let me, let me get this correct to the church in Corinth. All right. And he says, let me get this correct. All right. There has been reports of sexual sin in your church, the type of sin that you don't even see in the world. 
that a man is sleeping with his stepmother. I mean, Paul is like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Let me understand this correctly. This is what I just got a report of, that in your church, there is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Then he says this in verse two, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. In other words, the leadership, the, the, the elders, the deacons, whatever you want to call your church, eldership, leadership, he's saying, you're not even, you're not even like remor- showing remorse by what happened. You're not even upset about it. You're puffed up about it. He says in verse three, for I indeed am absent in the body, but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done the deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, now now I want you to notice how he says to deal with the person. He says, deliver him over to Satan, deliver his flesh over to Satan, that his spirit might still be saved. Notice what he said. This man slept with his stepmother and Paul did not say he's condemned to hell. Paul said his spirit still belongs to God, but deliver his flesh over to Satan. Now, if you follow the train of thought, read um, 2 Corinthians, the second letter to to the Corinthian church. He actually goes back and says, hey, remember that man I told you to kick out, deliver to Satan? Remember him? To the one I told you to exile? Bring him back in, lest we lose not just his body, but we also lose his spirit and his mind. All right. The way to deliver the man over to Satan is to cut him off from the rest of the church. Cut him off. As long as he's part of the fellowship and the brotherhood, he is safe. That's why I tell people all the time, church is not a man's idea. Church is not a good idea. Church was God's idea. People who say, well, you know, I don't need to go to church. Let me say this. Church was not my idea. And it wasn't your pastor's idea. Church was God's idea. Plain and simple. You don't want to go to church? That's fine. But let me say this. It's not my idea. It's God's idea. And right here, Paul is saying, deliver that person up to Satan who's doing something that's so vile, so crazy, that doesn't even happen in the world. He's saying, deliver that person to Satan. The way that they're supposed to do it is to cut that person off from church. Now, what does that say about people who say, I don't want to go to church anymore? Listen, on your own, Satan can wreak havoc in your life. But just by being connected to a fellowship of believers, there can be a safety and a protection that you'll never, you never would have gotten before. So I encourage people all the time, go to church, (laughs) go to church. But anyways, verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, now watch this. I want to show you, uh, look at verse, verse six. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not even know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he goes on to say other things. But my point is this. He says, you're, you're, you're almost bragging about what's happening in your church. You're talking about it. You're bragging about it, but you're not dealing with it. How do you deal with it? Get the man out of the church. Now notice, for something that's so bad, that doesn't even happen in the world, he never used the word marvel, and he never used the words curse. All right? Look at this. Skip down to chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, Apostle, the Apostle Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now watch this. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. No, no. (laughs) Watch this. What was happening in Corinth was the men were going to the temple. To preach, I'm sorry, to uh, to hear the word of God. They were going to the temple to take communion. They were going to the temple just to be 
at church, be part of the church, like Paul told them to. But the problem was there were women that were hanging around, hanging around the temples, the prostitutes, harlots. And what happened was the men, probably mostly who were single, all right, they were sleeping with the print. Ugh, can't get it out. They were sleeping with the temple prostitutes. Now, as they're sleeping with the temple prostitutes, Paul realizes, hey, wait a second. Are you crazy? <laughs> now, again, with what they've done, he says, let me explain it first. Okay. Sexual immorality is not something that you sin against God. You sin against your own body. Right. And then he says this. Do you not know, verse 15, one more time, that you, I'm sorry, that your bodies are, not were, but your bodies are members of Christ? Listen, he's not saying before you sinned, your body was a member of Christ. He's saying, knowing that you have sinned, let me tell you what you are, even though you sinned. Now, you see, the way we, the way we preach sin in the church today, the way it was taught when I was a kid, is sin moves you from your position, right? The way we used to hear it all the time was when you sin, all right, uh, everything that God wanted to do for you, now you've disqualified yourself. Sin moves your position. You were seated in Christ, but you hadn't prayed in two weeks. You were seated in Christ, but you haven't read your Bible in a month, right? <laughs> Hopefully it's not been that long. But my point is this, you haven't done enough good things, so your position of where you were has changed. It was all conditional, so to speak, all right? But right here, Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, don't you know that you are, present tense, you are still members of the body of Christ, even though they just sinned. Then he says this in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot or a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become flesh, quoting from Genesis 2, 24, Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Now watch this. Do you not know that your body is, not your body was, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let me say this. And I say this to some of the parents who are watching this. I know we have some parents on here. Uh, I say this to uh, a little bit of everybody, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, know this sin cannot move you from your position in Christ Jesus. It cannot move your position. It can't. Paul still has not used in Corinth to the church in Corinth. He still has not used the same words he used to the church in Galatia. In Galatia, I marvel, cursed, let that person be cursed. Again, I say it again. In case you didn't get it the first time, I say it again. Let that person be cursed. But then when he comes here to the church in Corinth, he says, let me, hold on, hold on, guys. Let me remind you of who you are. Let me remind you of who you are. Sin has not changed your position. Let me remind you of who you are. You see, in the church, the answer to sin, we always thought it was condemn, condemn, condemn. How dare you? Who do you think you are? How dare you uh, uh, condemn or make them feel guilty? And when they feel guilty, they want to change. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Nothing can be further from the truth. The solution to sin in the church, the solution is not to throw an insane judgment party and, and call everybody out and point the person out, make them stand up and tell them how bad they are, how evil they are. Paul is saying, no, the way we deal with sin in the church is we tell them what they still have in Christ. We tell them 
who they are. We remind them, Jesus has made you so perfectly clean once and for all through the cross that you, even your sin, can't move you from where you are. Even your sin can't change your position in Christ. You are altogether lovely. That's the Song of Solomon version of it. All right. What you do can't even change that. You're safe. You're secure. You know, sometimes I like to use the analogy of Noah. Think about Noah and the ark, right? You see, keep in mind the whole Bible. All right. We have the stories of the Old Testament to learn from the patriarchs of old. But it's not just for learning from them. I like to remove the veil in the Old Testament to see the pictures of Jesus that God was hiding. When you look at the ark, uh, Noah's ark, okay, in Genesis, when you see Noah's ark, the ark, keep in mind, is made of entirely made of gopher wood. Gopher wood is an indestructible wood. All right. It can't be uh, it doesn't it doesn't rot. It's the only wood that really can't rot on it. All right. So to speak, it's indestructible wood. God says, I want you to get indestructible wood. And then what I want you to do is I want you to make it by this dimension and that dimension and this dimension. And literally every dimension is divisible by the number five, meaning it's all grace. Everything that's going to be in this ark is going to be contained by my grace. Then he says this, keep in mind, the wood speaks of the ark of Jesus Christ, but it also speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ. All right. And keep in mind, he says, Noah, come into the ark. The day the judgment fell, the day the flood started, God told Noah, Noah, come into the ark, not go into it, come into it. Meaning God was already there. So he calls Noah into the ark. And when Noah and his family are in safe and secure, he shuts the door himself. And when God shuts the door, nobody can open it. Right. As long as Noah's in the ark, Everyone around him can die. The, all creation can die. Judgment is falling on everyone. But Noah is safe and sound in the ark. Judgment all around, but safe in the ark. Now, in the ark, Noah might make a... Make, make, he, let me say this. He's human. He sinned. At some point, he might yell at his wife. He might say things he shouldn't have. His wife might slap him. His sons might get into a fight and accidentally punch one of the other brothers in the face. I mean... All, all types of problems can happen in the ark. Noah could have got drunk in the ark, right? All types of problems happen in the ark. But in the ark, no one falls out the ark because once God shuts the door, they are sealed to the day the judgment resides. And when they step out, the, the, the Bible says that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And Ararat in the Hebrew literally means curse reversed. Their first step in the new creation was to put their feet on a mountain called the curse is reversed. Again, for all of us, it's not just to learn from the patriarchs. It's to remove the veil and realize what Jesus, what God is trying to get you to understand. The Holy Spirit is trying to unveil to all of us is once you say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are now stepping everywhere you step. The curse has been reversed. When you go to work, the curse has been reversed at home. The curse has been reversed. So if you're experiencing the curse in your life, know this. Jesus has reversed the curse. Because you were in the ark of Jesus Christ. You were in the cross of Christ. And you died with Christ. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. Therefore, you step into a place where the curse has been reversed. Oh, man, it's beautiful. I love it. I love removing the veil in the Old Testament. But anyways, we're still in 1 Corinthians. Now, again, Paul doesn't use the same words he uses for Galatia that he uses for the church in Corinth. What's the difference? You see, the church in Corinth, they weren't. You see, let me say it this way. And I want to be really careful too. The church in Corinth, there was sin and they weren't condemning it. Paul doesn't use the harsh words for them. But the church in Galatia, they were doing their best to make God happy. And Paul uses words he doesn't use for any other church out of anger. One church is trying to impress God. The other church is just, oh, we sin. We got sin. We got problems. <laughs> let me say this. God gives grace to the humble. 
as long as the church in Galatia is trying to be right by what they do, as long as they're trying to get God to bless them by what they do, Paul is mad. Paul is PO'd, all right? But the church in Corinth, they never stepped across that line of grace and law. They stayed in the grace of God. Yes, they forgot. Yes, they made mistakes. But as long as they stayed where they were, Paul never had any harsh words for them. He kept it soft. He kept it nice. And he gave them the solution that they needed. Let me say this. If you're struggling with anything, the answer to that sin, the answer to that problem is not be judged more. The answer to that problem is not get more condemnation from a pastor. Don't go listen to a bunch of sermons by a bunch of guys who are going to make you feel guilty or a bunch of women ministers who make you feel guilty. The answer to the solution is to realize what you have in Jesus. Not try to feel guilty enough that you won't do it anymore, but to realize what you have in Christ. That's Paul's solution. Now you say, Matthew, well, that's, that's kind of a reach. Let's do this. First Corinthians chapter 15, same chapter, same book. First Corinthians chapter 15. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, let me tell you what's going on. We're going to read verse 34 in just a second. Let me tell you what's going on. 1 Corinthians 15, somebody said, well, you know, I don't really believe that, you know, that the dead come back to life. And Paul says, well, let's take that logic all the way back to Jesus. Let's say the dead don't come back to life. Therefore, let's say Jesus didn't come back to life. And I use this for my Easter Sunday message, so you can go back and listen to that. But anyways, he goes on to say this. If the dead aren't raised back to life, then Jesus isn't. And if Jesus isn't, let me say this. All this preaching we're doing, we risk our lives every time we stand up to preach the gospel. He's saying all of this is really just a waste. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our life doing all this. It really means nothing. Then he also, he comes out to verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. Translation, there are people in your church who are saying dumb things. Don't spend time with them because evil company corrupts good morals. Be smart about this. We're not wasting our time. Jesus did come back to life. We know he came back to life. We know that he was raised from the dead. Knowing that, don't spend time with stupid people because stupidity is contagious. All right. Now, (laughs) then he says this in verse 34, awake to righteousness. Wake up to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, watch this. All right. I want to say this very carefully. Go and find a different translation. I love the New King James, but go find a different translation because what you're going to see is this verse actually literally says this, wake up to righteousness and sin not. You see, the ability to stop sinning, the ability to be set free from sin, and I use that on purpose, the ability to say that I don't, I don't give in to every temptation. I don't have to give in to every temptation. I don't have to, I don't have to get tripped up every time I do this or every time I go there or every time I hear that. All right. I don't, sin does not control me. The way to win, all right, is to wake up to the reality that you are still righteous. You know, I tell a church all the time and um, I want to encourage you to do the same. Say out loud every day, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Remind yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. No matter what goes on in life, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you fail, every time you fail, wake up to the reality. You are righteous. Every time you fail, wake up to that reality. Tell yourself in that moment that you're failing, I am still the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Just keep saying it. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And what happens is this. When you wake up to that reality, when that reality becomes true, all of the sudden, sin has no more power over you. The ability to stop sinning comes when you realize God isn't judging you. 
you are still the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, how can we say that? How can we say when we sin, God isn't judging us, that we are still the righteousness of God in Christ? How can we say that? Keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, God didn't put some of your sin. God didn't put a lot of your sin. God put all your sin into the body of his son. And at the cross, Jesus died for our lifetime and eternity of sin. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews, I love Hebrews chapter 10, but in the book of Hebrews, I want to say chapter nine, he says this, the blood of bulls and goats gave temporary forgiveness, but the blood of Christ was eternal. I'm sorry, not was, is eternal, offering us eternal redemption. His blood doesn't just cover you for a small portion of time. His blood covers you for an eternity. I love Hebrews chapter 9, but Hebrews chapter 10 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. So go read Hebrews chapter 10. Love it. Huge. All right. Anyways, how do we get on this? <laughs> what were we saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so again, wake up to righteousness and sin not. The ability to win over sin is wake up to the reality you are still right with God. Now, let me show you this in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm keeping my eye on the time here. But again, this is Bible study. So if you have to leave, I bid you adieu. But if you can stick it out with me, thank you. I'm coming to something. I think you're going to enjoy it. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 5. 2 Peter 1 verse 5. Look at this. Peter says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. Verse 7, to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Now, let me say this. From 5 to 6, those are all good things. Now, one thing he said is bad. All right? The one I think speaks to me the most is self-control. I, uh, I have a real issue with uh, white chocolate. White chocolate is my weakness. If you know me, you know white chocolate is my weakness. All right? Uh, so, <laughs> let me say this. For whatever you're going through, whatever your problem is, all right, self-control is in there as well, all right? All these things, he's saying, add all these things to you because these are all good things. You should have brotherly kindness. You should have love, all right? You should have virtue. You should have faith. You should have all these things. You should have all these things. And all these things, let me say this, all these things, they should be ex exuding themselves from you. But the problem is if we stop there, I've just given you something to do. But let me show you. God's way is better. Grace is always better than what we can come up with on our own. Watch this. Verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Now, this is where, this is, where this is the clincher, right? The punchline, so to speak. Watch this. For he who lacks these things, all right, if you're missing in any of these things, he says, for he who lacks these things, he is short-sighted even to blindness. And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, this verse to me just kind of brings it all home. To the one who is missing any of those things, all those things, most of those things, if you're missing in any of those things, you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your old sin. Somewhere in your mind, your spiritual enemy is telling you you're still guilty. He's still making you feel condemned for something you did and sometimes something that you are doing. But in that moment, Peter's saying, don't be short-sighted. Don't only see what's in front of you and make a judgment call. Don't see what's in front of you. Don't see what you just did and say, 
okay, I'm gonna make a decision. God is mad at me. Or I'm gonna make a decision. How can I go to church? How can I do this? How can I pray? How can I say I'm righteous? I'm the righteousness of God. How can I expect God to do something for me when I just did this? He's saying, stop. You're short-sighted even to blindness because you're missing the point. The point is not to see yourself. The point is to realize he had, I'm sorry, to see that he has removed all your sin. And if you can see that, then all those things will come. Even in the moment where you're failing, you're failing, you're eating the white chocolate, you know you're not supposed to be eating it, all right? (laughs) In that moment, if you can remember, he cleansed you even from that sin too. Self-control can kick back in. You won't be unfruitful. Instead, you'll be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you something, and I'm going to bring this to a close. Look at this in Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to pick up a verse. Is it Matthew 11? Where is it? No, I apologize. It's Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Now, I'm going to share something with you about how to move mountains. I was just singing a song about that earlier. Uh, I've seen you move the mountains, uh, and I believe I'll see you do it again. Awesome song, by the way. Uh, If you don't know it, it's called Do It Again by Elevation. You should go check it out. Awesome song. Anyways, I was just, you know, singing that just the other day. Um, And the more I was singing it uh, in preparation for today, I really felt impressed to share this with all of you. Now, when it comes to moving mountains, Jesus is going to say something in verse 23. In fact, let's skip to 23 real quick. He says this, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea uh, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Now watch this. He's saying, if you can believe in your heart and not doubt, if you look at a mountain and say, be removed mountain, go be thrown into the sea. All right. He says, it'll happen. All you have to do is believe it when you say it. Don't doubt in your heart. But if you can believe it when you say it, it will be done for you. All right. Now, let's get to that point. OK, shall we? Let's uh, let's uh, back up a little bit to verse 12 and let's figure out how we got here. OK, now watch this in verse 12. It says, now the next day when they, Jesus and his disciples, had come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing afar a fig tree having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, we're going to stop there. Let me let me just explain. I don't think I need to, but for the sake of argument, let's explain. All right. Jesus leaves Bethany on his way to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree and he's hungry. So he approaches the fig tree. Now, keep in mind, it's not the time for figs. But anyways, he comes to the fig tree. And I love that detail that it's not the time for figs because he's trying to show us this has nothing to do with the figs. <laughs> Jesus knew it's not the time for figs, but he went and did this anyways. So that's like the Holy Spirit's subtle hint. Don't get stuck on the miracle. Look at the sign and realize it speaks to a greater truth. Right now, keep in mind, it's not the season for figs. Jesus goes to the fig tree anyways. When he gets to the fig tree, there's no figs. So what does he say? Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. You see, today when we when we use, you know, cuss words, we swear, people say, oh, you know, you 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 cuss this person out. A Bible curse really has nothing to do with using certain words. A Bible curse is when you look at somebody or you look at yourself and you say, like Jesus did, let's say um, if I was to curse myself, I would say, you know, 
gosh, I'm always late, or man, I always make mistakes, or, or, or I always do this, I always do that. It's to say something negative over yourself or to a different person, all right? When you do that, you've cursed yourself or you've cursed that other person. So Jesus right here, he didn't have to use certain words. Just by looking at the tree and speaking something negative over the tree, he cursed the tree. Now, he curses the tree in verse 14. Skip down to verse 20. The very next day, it says, now in the morning as they, Jesus and his disciples passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering what Jesus had done the day before, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now, Peter is shocked. How can you say that to the tree? The tree died. Now watch what Jesus says, verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those, th those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Now, let me share this with you. All right. The reason why I put the context before, because I want you to see, I want you to, I want to show you this. The fig tree is really the key. I, I say this a lot in our church. Whenever you see a treasure, there's always a key very close by. The Holy Spirit doesn't like to hide truth very well. All right. It's the glory of God to hide something, but it's the glory of kings to find it. He knows that we need him to help us find the key. So he wants to help us find it. So the key is actually right here in the story. Now watch this. The treasure is speak to the mountain. The mountain will be removed, but don't doubt in your heart. Now, how do we get from where we are to that place where mountains will be removed? Let me show you. It's actually tied up in the fig tree. The first time a fig tree is mentioned in the Bible, all right? I want you to think about this. Ask yourself, where is the first time a fig tree is mentioned in the Bible? All right? If you're trying to remember in your head, let me just go ahead and tell you. It's mentioned in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just sinned, and they looked at each other. They ate from the wrong tree. They looked at each other, and they realized that they were naked, and they realized that the glory of God had disappeared. It dissipated. It was gone. And in that moment, Adam and Eve went and instead of killing an animal, they went and took the fig leaves, sewed the fig leaves together and tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. Now, I'm speaking more to the type into the shadow because what I want you to understand is this fig leaves, not figs themselves, but fig leaves speak of a bloodless religion. They speak of a religion without blood. They speak of let me fix the mistake that I made. No one has to die. Let me let me just fix the mistake that I made. But when God showed up in the garden and God saw what they had done or realized what they had done. And he said, you know, I was looking for you, Adam, where were you? Why were you hiding? And he says, well, we looked, we saw that we were naked and we were afraid. And God looks at him and God says, wait a second. What, what do you mean? Who told you that you were naked? And he realizes what's going on. He realizes that they ate from the wrong tree. And he says, all right, this is what's going to happen. And he curses them and he kicks them out the garden. But he has to kill the lamb to do it. You have to understand, there is no such thing with God as a bloodless religion. The law presupposes that you can do it on your own, right? It presupposes that you can do it on your own. Jesus cursed the fig tree. You have to curse self-righteousness. And I say this very carefully. The, the, the implication here is to curse self-righteousness. Curse that part of you that thinks I can be good enough. Curse that part of you that thinks I can do something right. Paul is cursing the Galatians who are preaching, not them, the church, but he's cursing the people who are preaching anything other than grace. Because what he's saying is it's a bloodless religion. It's taking Jesus out of the equation. 
as long as I'm looking at myself for all the mistakes I made, as long as I'm looking at myself for all the mistakes I've done, all the wrong things, all the evil things, all the bad things, and I'm holding on to the guilt, I'm holding on to the condemnation, I'm holding on to the hurt, as long as I'm holding on to all of that, what happens is this, that is a bloodless religion, and Paul is saying, curses anyone who preaches that, Jesus is saying, curse the fig tree, curse self-righteousness, right? And what is the result? The very next day, Peter says, what in the world? How did the fig tree die? What did you do? Look, look, look what you did. And Jesus all of a sudden comes out with what? That's, this is easy. If you don't doubt in your heart, but you speak to the mountain, it will be removed. Now, let me say this. Now, I say this carefully, okay? Curse self-righteousness and every mountain in your life will be removed. In the moment that a mountain presents itself in your life, and I'm using a mountain as a type or as a form, in the moment where a problem arises, in the moment where something bad happens and you have a mountain of a problem, whatever that problem is, and I can speak to that because I understand it and I won't speak to it now for the sake of the time that we're still going, 49 minutes. But let me say this, whatever that problem is in your life, whatever you're looking at, if you will curse your own ability to try and fix it and say, you know what? I'm not going to try and fix this. I'm going to let Jesus try and fix this. Just recently, I was having a problem and I had to go to the Lord. I can't share right now what it was, but I had a problem. I had to go to the Lord and I said, Lord, I need your help. I need you to help me fix this. I need you to help me fix this. And uh, it wasn't about a day or two later, I heard the Lord say this, I'm not going to help you. He said, I will fix it for you, but I'm not going to help you fix it. And I had this moment where I just, I was sitting in my car and I just sat back and I said, you're right. You're not going to help me. You're going to fix this for me because you don't want my help. If I help you, I'm only going to make it worse. Abraham tried to help God. He made it worse. Every time we try to help God, we make it worse. So you know what? I told the Lord, I'm going to let you do it. And it was about a couple of days later, things started to turn around for me really, really well. In fact, at the same time, all of a sudden I started getting ideas to do certain things that I never would have thought of before. And they were just awesome ideas. I just wanted to do them. And I went and did it. And I looked back and I realized it was the Holy Spirit leading me from the inside out. What I told our church was this is the year of a hearing heart. And I was actually part of... Excuse me. I was part of how the Lord wants to lead you from the inside out. The promptings, not the voice, but the promptings. That's how he leads you. But neither here nor there. That's a message for another time. Let me bring this thing to a close. Curse self-righteousness and the mountain will be removed. Now, let me show you this. This is my very last verse. Look at this in Zechariah, Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Yes, Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to close with a story about a man named Joshua. All right. And uh, I hope that you've been blessed tonight. I know it's been a long one, but this is Bible study. So I don't, you know, I, I guess I should apologize, but it's Bible study. You knew what you were getting. <laughs> Zechariah chapter three, we're going to pick up at verse one. And I just want to read verse one down to verse three, because I want you to understand the context of what's going on. All right. Zechariah chapter three, verse one, it says, then he showed me, Zechariah is the prophet. And he's saying, the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now watch this. At this point, Jesus hasn't come yet. So because Jesus hasn't come yet, that position that Adam had at God's right hand to speak to God, that position has been uh, compromised. Now Satan has that position. A lot of people at this point in the Bible, a lot of people look at the story of Job and they say, well, you know, Job this, Job that. Let me say this. We'll talk about Job another time. But keep in mind, Satan was in God's presence and he didn't die. 
How was he in God's presence and he wasn't annihilated? Well, when Adam sinned, before he sinned, Adam had a place at God's hand to speak to God. But when he sinned, he bowed the knee and gave that position up to Satan. So in Job's story, you see Satan talking to God and God doesn't say, how did you get here? God knows he has the right to be here because Adam compromised that position. Now, knowing that right here, God gives Zachariah a vision. And in the vision, Satan is at God's right hand attacking Job. He's attacking Job. He's, he's like, imagine like a court of law. God is the judge. Um, and Joshua is the, is the one on trial and Satan is opposing everything that Joshua is. And he's attacking him just with his words alone. So watch this. He has a vision that Satan is opposing him at God's right hand. Verse two. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now watch this. Jesus, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is there, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, there was a lot of judgment going on, but out of the judgment, did I not pull him out of the flames to save him for myself? Now watch this. Verse three. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now I want you to see this because this is going to set us up for chapter four. All right. Keep in mind, Joshua is the high priest. And as a high priest, he's feeling guilty. They've come back from uh, captivity, and they're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to rebuild the city. Uh, right now, they're trying to build the temple first. And as they're building the temple, as a high priest, he realizes that he is going to be the top dog, the one to talk to God. And he realizes he starts feeling guilty. Satan starts making him feel guilty. And on the surface, nobody can see Satan's making him feel guilty. But all of a sudden, the production starts slowing down. They're building the temple, but everything is being slowed down. And they can't figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, Zechariah, a young prophet, God gives him a vision. This is why things aren't moving as fast as they could be moving. He says, let me show you what's going on in the spirit realm. In the spirit realm, Zechariah is coming under intense condemnation. Satan is making him feel bad. He's making him feel condemned for the position and the way things are turning out. And what he's saying is this, look, I need you to understand his garments are dirty as a shadow, as a type and as a shadow, his garments are dirty, meaning garments speak of righteousness. And I can't get into that tonight. We'll get into another time, but your garments speak of righteousness. And he's saying, look, his garments are dirty. And Zachariah realizes, wait a second, if his garments are dirty, then that's all the more reason he's coming under condemnation. Now, condemnation, he shouldn't be coming under, but nevertheless, he's still coming underneath it. So he says, okay, what do I say to him? Now, God gives him a vision. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. But then he says, this is what I want you to tell Joshua. Are you ready? Now, he gives the word to Joshua, and then he comes to Zerubbabel. Now, to Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And I'm going to close with this. Two verses. You ready? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Very next chapter. We're going to read 6 and 7, and I'm going to close. Verse 6, so the angel spoke to Zechariah and answered to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the one who's in charge all right, of rebuilding the temple. Joshua is the high priest, but this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might or strength, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now watch this. It's not how strong you are. It's not how smart you are, but by the Holy Spirit, says the Lord. The thing that God has called you to do, that mountain that's in front of you, you were making progress, but all of a sudden you got a mountain in front of you or you have a giant, let's use mountain, not giant. Let's talk about a mountain, all right? You have a mountain in front of you and you don't know how you're going to scale this thing, how you're going to get around this mountain. You don't know what you're going to do. God, how do I get around this? God, how do I move beyond this? And what he says is this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. My spirit's going to do it. And this is how he's going to do it. Look at verse seven. Who are you, O great mountain? Remember, Jesus said the mountain would be cast into the sea. Watch this. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, the one who's in charge, you shall become a plain. <laughs> 
and he shall bring forth the capstone. Now watch this. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. I save this for the end because I want you to understand. Whatever God has called you to do, you're not going to complete it by doing more. You're not going to get to the place that God wants you to be by accepting all the guilt and all the condemnation for all the mistakes you made. You're not going to get from where you are to where God wants you to be by accepting the guilt, the condemnation, by looking at what you're doing and what you're not doing. You're not going to get where God has called you to be by focusing on all the things you've done wrong. What you have to do is realize all the things you've done wrong have been put on Jesus at the cross. You have to, you have to make that, that assessment. You can't just say, well, I'm going to throw sin out the window. No, 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 no. Let me say this. God did not just throw sin out the window. Sin had to be paid for. Grace is not saying God doesn't see sin ever. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Grace is not saying that God just annihilated sin. Grace is saying God paid the ultimate price to remove your sin for you. And knowing that will make you appreciate the payment more. I'm telling you, you will never get to where you need to be, where God has called you to be by focusing on what you've done wrong. You will only finish the work that God has called you. Like he told Zerubbabel right here, you'll put the capstone, you'll put that finishing touch on it with a shout of grace, grace to it. You see, what's the greater sin? What's the greater sin? Which church was actually in a worse place? Was it the church in Corinth? where a man sleeps with his stepmother, where the men are sleeping with temple prostitutes. I mean, I mean, that's some bad stuff. I mean, even in, in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, no, 1 Corinthians, where he talks about communion. They were uh, drinking the cup. They were getting drunk when they were taking communion. I mean, this is some bad stuff, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, that was we didn't even look at 1 Corinthians 11, where they were getting drunk on the communion. I mean, this church was in, it was a rough place to be. But as bad as the church was in Corinth, were they worse than the church in Galatia? Because Paul used worse words for the church in Galatia than he did for the church in Corinth. And why was that? Because to step away from the grace of God is the worst thing you could ever do. But to realize, to realize, I'm under the grace of God. I can't make a lot of mistakes, but I'm still under the grace of God. You're in a safer and better place than you will ever be. And let me say this. You will always finish the work God has called you to finish. Not by saying, look how good I am. Look what I've done. You'll only finish it by shouting grace. I'm going to close with this statement. Some people say, you know, but you still got to do this. You still got to do that. You still got to, you know, you got to, you got to, but, 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 you know, they love to add on to the grace of God. Let me say this. You will not get to heaven one day and hear the angels around, hear the angels surrounded around the throne, the four living creatures surrounded around the throne. You will not get to heaven one day and hear worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain and Matthew Edwards who worked hard and showed that he could do enough good things for God to move for him. You will never hear that. What you will hear, though, is worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You know why? Because it's not me and it's not you. It's what Jesus did for all of us. I hope you've been blessed tonight. I love you. I realize that we went right at one hour. Um, My bad. (laughs) I told you I was excited and I had a lot to share but at the end of the day, my heart for you is this. Again, this is Bible study. I didn't want to go, you know, um, I, didn't, I feel like we could go one step deeper. Uh, and again, this is to lay the foundation of what we're covering. But again, my hope and prayer for all of you is this, that you grab hold of the grace of God, the gospel, the true gospel, the grace of God with everything that you've got. And that you will really start re- assessing what you're hearing. 
And I say that carefully. I'm not trying to do this to motivate people to start coming to our church. That's not the point of this at all. But the point of this is to really get you to ask yourself, am I listening to something that's helping me? Or am I listening to something that Paul pronounced a curse on? Does it show me more of my failure? Or does it show me, show me more of what Jesus did for me? And if it's the latter, you're in a safe place. That said, I love you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.